The last couple weeks, we have been exploring our vision and our mission here at Calvary. Starting with our vision, we talked about making Jesus non-ignorable in Monta Vista and to the ends of the earth. A bit of review for that, we looked at Acts chapter 3 and 4 and the powerful public and bold ministry of Peter and John in Jerusalem. Last week, we talked about our mission here at Calvary, which is to make joyful, passionate disciples of Jesus Christ. And for our mission, we looked at the great commission, Matthew chapter 28, to Jesus' call to make disciples of all nations. And we looked at Acts chapter 1, in which the disciples are sent by Jesus into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, what we may think of as our local, regional, and world mission. Today, we're going to continue that same vein of series, and we're going to begin what we uh, call talking about our four core commitments here at Calvary. Our four core commitments are how we live out our vision and our mission. That means that if we're missing or have strayed from our vision or our mission, it's likely because of one of the four core commitments that we're going to be talking about over the next four weeks, is also missing or is lacking. The first core commitment we're going to be looking at is worship, specifically to worship God passionately. Now, Spurgeon once said or wrote that some go to church to take a walk, some go there to laugh and talk, some go there to meet a friend, and some go there to their time to spend. Some go there to meet a lover. Some go there a fault to cover. Some go there for speculation. Some go there for observation. Some go there to doze and nod. You know who you are. (laughs) The wise go there to worship God. Worship. Worship. Usually when we think of worship, we think about what we do here in this room on a Sunday morning. And for some of us, we may also think about what might happen on a Sunday night, though not for us, or on a Wednesday night, though not for us. Right? We think worship and we think the gathered people, and we should. We absolutely should think about the gathered people. But worship is more than that, and we're going to look at that Today. Now, we're going to be in three passages today. Usually, if you're a part of our church, you know that we try to focus one passage and we preach verse by verse and word by word and paragraph by paragraph. That's our normal aim. But I got to be honest, as I start thinking about biblical worship, there is no way I can do one passage and treat worship well. Because one of the major themes of the entire Bible is worship. And so we're going to look at three passages today. And as such, this is not going to be a hardcore look at any of these passages, but more of a general look at them. And we're going to start in 2 Samuel 6, 12 through 22. Again, this is 2 Samuel 6, 12 through 22. What you need to know going into this is we're about to pick the story up halfway through. 
If you're familiar with this part of the Bible, then you may know that this is the second time that the people of Israel tried to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. The first time went horribly wrong. The first time, a guy named Uzzah, who was leading the ox that were pulling the Ark of the Covenant, noticed the ox stumble, the Ark shudder, and he reached out and touched it and found himself at the pearly gates. As well-meaning as he was, it was foolishness to treat something special of God as less than that. As a result, the ark was sent back out of the city because everybody was terrified. But then what happens is David notices that where the ark of the covenant is stored, the guy who owns that land is just getting his socks blessed off of him. And so David says, hey, we need to bring this thing back into the city. I need this thing. And so we pick up the story here. The other thing you need to know is we're going to encounter a gal named Michal, who is the daughter of King Saul, David's arch enemy. And also David's wife. As complicated as that relationship is, what we know is that Michal loved David. And that should strike us as we read this passage. So again, we're in 2 Samuel 6, starting in verse 12. And it says this, It was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window, saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me, above your father and above all his house, to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you've spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. And that's our first story. We're gonna look at two more as we go through this. The next two are a little shorter than that one. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. If you've been a Christian for very long, you are familiar with this passage of Mary and Martha. If you're not familiar with it, I I just share this is a a beautiful story of, of what it looks like to be devoted to Jesus. It says, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. 
But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me out, or to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. All right, and one more passage we want to look at today. Matthew 26, starting in verse 6 through 13. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring the ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Worship. Worship. Usually what we think of is Sunday morning. The gathered people in the house of God. Or as sometimes we refer to it, the house of worship. In the book of Hebrews, we are told that we should not neglect the meeting together and gathering of God's people for the sake of encouragement of one another. But let me tell you, worship is not confined to the gathering with one another. Spurgeon once wrote, all places are places of worship to a Christian. Wherever he or she is, he ought to be in a worshiping frame of mind. Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. As Christians, worship is a part of who we are, or not just a part of who we are. It is what we are always doing, no matter where we are or what we are doing. Not just in a specific place with specific people, or maybe another time during the week, it is how we live. That said, the focus this morning is on our gathered worship. But everything we say today should apply to the rest of our lives, to the everyday. See, A.W. Tozer wrote that the depths of a man's spirituality may be known quite accurately by the quality of his public prayers. Tozer believed that our public prayer life was a reflection of our private prayer life. And I would say the same thing of our worship. Our public worship as a church is affected, maybe most of all, by the private worship experiences and and, uh, encounters and devotion that the individual Christians have throughout the week. We will be more affected by our own private worship, devotion, reading of scripture, even singing in our cars at the top of our lungs, than we will be by the people who lead from up front and the songs that are chosen. If we, as Christians, worship weekly and daily in our private lives, then when we come together, it will be affected all the more. Amen? So, 
Today we're going to take a look at these three passages. The first thing we're going to do is look and see what they have in common. And then we're going to look at three distinctives that each one has. And each are going to tell us what worship is or what passionate worship should be. And so we're going to dive right into that. So number one, worship, passionate worship is worship that is God-focused. Again, that's worship that is God-focused. Church, let me tell you, just to be really clear here, worship isn't about you. And it's not about me. And it's not about Don and Donna and Cynthia's up front. It's not about us when we're leading worship. It is about God. We see this. Look at David's dancing, right? In verse 21, we see one of the most me-centered responses you can find in Scripture. And yet, David's me-centered response is so focused on God. He says to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. Right? David says, me, me, I, I. But what's the me, me, and I all about? It's about the part of him that is so focused on the Lord that nothing else matters. Think about Mary sitting there at the feet of Jesus. Her sister busily, hurriedly running around, right? Setting the table, getting the food ready, doing what a good hostess does. She sits at the feet of Jesus and listens. And Jesus calls it the better thing. Sometimes we get so focused on serving, we miss out on the better thing. And that's Jesus. It's sitting at the feet of Jesus. You look at the woman who takes this ointment, this perfume, and she breaks this jar of literally immeasurable wealth. And it's not about her. It's about Jesus. For each of these worshipers, their actions are about the Lord. They're about Jesus. They're about God. And the only part of them that this is about is the part of them that is all about God. Because God has saved them and rescued them and is there for them. It's the part of them that is compelled to focus all of their attention, all of their resources, all of their interest in the direction of God in praise and worship and glory. It's not about them. We're going to be passionate worshipers. It's not going to be about us. It can't be. We're too small for passionate worship, but he is worth it. The irony in this is that in each one of these stories, it actually puts the worshiper in the spotlight. And that's the last thing any of them want. See, the byproduct of passionate worship is it often puts the human in response. And guess what? That human has the choice. Do I accept that or do I Cast it off back onto God. So passionate worship is God-focused. Number two, passionate worship is worship that goes beyond just our voices. Passionate worship is worship that goes beyond just our voices. To some of us worship, we use that word, say, who's going to lead worship today? 
You know, what's the worship going to be? What we're thinking about is the songs that are sung and the voices that happen. But look, Mary, her worship has nothing to do with her voice. She might be asking questions of Jesus. We don't know. But Mary's worship is sitting and it's focused. She is learning. Her focus is about her brain and her heart soaking in the presence of Jesus. Her brain is engaged right along with her. She's listening and thinking that. And her worship is then fed in emotion and feeling by her her thinking, by her brain being engaged with God. Passionate worship is not about disconnecting. It's about engaging with ideas and thoughts. The Christian faith is one of thoughts and ideas, right? It's one full of knowledge and understanding. Our God is the God who knows everything. And we are called to be more and more like him, which means that our quest for knowledge and understanding and learning should never stop. David, look at David. He's in the streets dancing and leaping. There's music and there's shouting and there's instruments, right? There's noise. There's sacrifices in the streets. The woman Her worship involves a very costly gift of perfume, broken, anointing Jesus' head with oil. It involves her hands. And of course, it involves her checkbook, right? It involves the the things she cares about and the prioritizes. See, passionate worship will include singing, but it's going to go beyond. Passionate worship involves our daily learning and sitting at the feet of Jesus. Passionate worship involves our bodies and how we live. Passionate worship determines how we spend our money and what our financial priorities are. Romans 12, 1 through 2, Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The Apostle Paul's standard for worship was a worship that involved all of you and all of me being sacrificed to God. I was thinking about this. What this means is that I can't just worship God with my voice because you can't disconnect my voice from me. I can't just worship with my hands because you can't disconnect my hands from me, right? Your worship is not just your brain or not just your feet or not just your heart. You can't cut those parts off and give them to God. You can only give all of you to God at the same time. Passionate worship involves all of us, every part of who we are. So we look and we see that passionate worship, right, is God-focused. It involves more than our voices of all who we are. Passionate worship is also public. Passionate worship is also public. Now hear this. You can worship your heart out and your head out and your body out driving in in your car by yourself. Amen? Amen? Some of us like doing that. Some of you are like, that's weird. If you ever drive next to me and I'm in the car by myself, you're driving down the highway, you're like, that guy has lost it. (laughs) Praise the Lord, right? Public or passionate worship is going to be public. And I don't mean like public out there. I mean public in here. 
Now, I do mean public out there, too. There are times when the church is gathered, we are outside the walls of the church, and we are praising God. But public, public worship has to happen. The corporate church has to gather. And there's a number of reasons for that. The first, the first is increased joy. Increased joy. As we worship with one another, our joy is increased. Now, there are times... When we as a church are gathered to sing, and you've all experienced this in this church or another one, and a song comes up that you don't know, or even worse, a song comes up that you don't like, right? I'll tell you, my sinful mind immediately begins to wander to lunch or to, oh man, I'm the pastor. I should have told him not to do this song, right? But then my eyes. My eyes see the person next to me or a couple rows in front of me or the person up front singing their heart out. And suddenly I realize that song means something to them. It may mean nothing to me. But to them, that song is powerful and it's leading them into the presence of God. You know what happens in that moment? I'm led into the presence of God too. See, it's not about us. If it's about him, then we, our joy is increased as others are singing and praising God. But not only is our joy increased in public worship, our depth is increased in public worship. Because, man, there are times when you've got someone in the room, they've been a Christian for like three weeks. And you've got somebody in the room. I love a church like this. It's multi-generational. And if we're not now, we're going to be. Okay? And you've got somebody who's been a Christian for 80 years. And what happens? That person who's been a Christian for like three weeks and they're learning and they're growing from the worship of an 80-year-old Christian. And then what happens? Well, have you ever met a three-week-old Christian? Man, they love Jesus. They're so excited. Why? Because they're three weeks removed from death. But the 80-year-old Christian, i got to be honest, sometimes you guys are boring. <laughs> you have forgotten because you're 60 years or 50 years or 80 years away from, from your sinful death. And you forget. And so we come together and what happens? We go deep into Jesus together. Not only do we have more joy and have more depth, but we also have unity. We also have unity because when it's not about us and we're singing together and you hear somebody crying out and we're crying out and, and you've got somebody who can't sing behind you and you've got somebody next to you who sings beautifully, you realize that sometimes what happens in the church is we cover over each other. Amen. We make up for each other's weaknesses and we grow together. And we have unity as we worship one God together. And it doesn't matter that we came from different backgrounds. It doesn't matter that some of us go back to a home and some of us go back to the street. It doesn't matter, right? Some of us have jobs and some of us don't. It doesn't matter that some of us are suffering and some of us aren't. What we have together as we sing is unity in one God, in one spirit, through the one word. Not only that, but the public, corporate, gathered worship is commanded by Christ and by God's word. And church, let me just say, it is good to be obedient to God. It's good to, to leave here on a Sunday morning realizing that what we just did was exactly what God called us to do. Is there another day of the week that you walk away from saying, hey, I did exactly what I was supposed to do today? And I love being obedient to God. 
I love it. Why? Because it means that God is at work in me. And I love seeing you being obedient to God because it means God's working in you. And here's the thing about public worship, though. For all the good, it's, it's risky, isn't it? I mean, when I'm in my car belting it out by myself, it doesn't matter what I do. The people next to me probably won't see me again. And if they do, whatever. Right? But public worship is risky. We see that in our passages, each one of them. Right? Look at Mary and Martha. Mary's sitting there at the feet of Jesus, exactly where she's supposed to be. And what happens? Her sister complains about her. Right? She gets attacked for doing the right thing. You look at, you look at the woman, right? And you see the woman and she's like breaking the oil over and the disciples are like, well, Jesus, we could have used that money for something better. Here's this woman getting attacked by a bunch of men. This is not good, right? But a man in 2 Samuel 6, this is where it gets me. 2 Samuel 6, 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, me called the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. Now, I don't want to read modern standards of marriage into an Old Testament marriage, particularly a royalty situation. Right? This is a whole different ballgame, a whole different battle. Right? There's arranged marriage stuff going on here, and there's all kinds of crazy that we just don't deal with. But here's what we know. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, we read multiple times that Michal loved David. She loved him. Why? Well, because he was everything her father was not. Faithful, obedient, courageous, kind, loving, right? And David dances in the street, worshiping God. And what happens? Her heart goes from loving David to despising him. Public worship's risky. Because we put ourselves out there and we don't know what others are going to do. We don't know what the Christian in the room is going to do who thinks that, man, we just kind of lost a little bit, right? That Christian who, who thinks, oh, nobody should put their hands up. I got to tell you, hands are up during worship a lot of the time. Okay, we, we put ourselves out there and there are Christians who are probably well-meaning, but, but just don't get what it's like to really put yourself into worship. And we fear the person sitting away from us or uh, behind us or whatever it might be. Or maybe we sing bad and we're worried that the person next to us is, is going to judge us for that. Now, more than that is the world. The world looks at us and the world thinks, what are you doing? You live in one of the most beautiful places in the world. And you choose to spend your Sunday morning in a stuffy building with a bunch of people that you don't like. Sorry, you probably do. <laughs> but the world thinks this way, right? You choose. You choose this. You choose instead of skiing on Sunday morning, in the winter, or hiking during the summer, or fishing, or whatever else it is you do. You all, this morning, have chosen to be in this room with these people. And the world says, what are you doing? And church... They judge us for it. They look at us like we're weird. And for some of us, we can't be anywhere but this place. 
Let me encourage you. 2 Samuel 6, 21 through 23. David says to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself, hear this, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you've spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. The female servants of whom she has spoken are faithful, humble God followers who see David's dancing as the king and are encouraged. They're encouraged by it. And they love that their king is just out there dancing in the street. Church, the saints are encouraged by your worship. The saints are encouraged by my worship, by our gathering together and praising God together. Amen? Are you willing to be more contemptible in the eyes of those who just don't get it because God is that worth it to you? I pray you are. All right, so far we've looked at the commonalities. We're going to look at a couple distinctions here in each of these passages passages. Now, the first, we're going to look at David's dancing. And here's what I want to say about David's dancing. David's dancing shows us passionate worship is worship that captivates. It is worship that captivates. Now, there's an element of this in each one of these stories. There is an element of this in each a bit, where the person worshiping kind of loses themselves in this. They're so focused on their worship, nothing else matters. In the story with David, here's the thing. Michal is not wrong about David. She's absolutely right about David. What he has done as the king is lower the dignity of his royal office. There's a moment in his dancing for God where he forgets that he's the king. So she's not wrong in her thinking, but she's wrong in her heart. She can't see that what David has done is right unto the Lord, that it is right for the king of Israel to abase himself in the eyes of anyone who would disagree, lower the office in praise of God. See, passionate worship sometimes means that we need to forget who we are, that we need to forget our station or office or situation or whatever that might mean. Now, that doesn't mean we disengage because Christian worship is always engaged. Our whole heart, our whole head, our whole body, okay? But there are times, I'll tell you, as as someone who, who sometimes leads worship, and I pray you get to see this when I'm leading worship, that I suddenly will forget you all are here. And I don't mean that because I don't want you here. I mean because there's suddenly a moment when I'm praising God where he's the only thing that matters in the fact that, that I might mess up a chord or something else or sing the wrong word. doesn't matter. Why? Because it's about him and not about a performance. There are times I pray you would see this when I'm preaching and I'm in the word of God and I'm still preaching to you all, but I'm so wrapped up in God's word because it's the only thing that matters. The business owner among us must dive into worship regardless of whether or not a potential customer is in the room and going to think they've lost it. The teacher, the school teacher, must live out their faith and worship regardless of whether or not parents or students are in the room thinking, man, she's, she's a little too fired up for Jesus. 
Women, you do this better than men. Almost universally. Men, sometimes we struggle with this a lot more. We struggle with our image, with who we are, with the dignity, right? But I got to tell you, our wives, our kids, our grandkids, even those others in the church need us to lead in passionate worship. This culture needs men who are going to boldly worship God with their voices, with their bodies, and with their lives and not sit back and let others do it. Passionate worship can and should result in us, even for a moment, forgetting our place, forgetting where we are, and focusing only on Jesus. Next up, we look at the woman washing Jesus' feet with her hair and her perfume, and what we see is that worship should be cross-focused. Worship should be cross-focused. Here's the beautiful thing in this passage. She doesn't even know her worship is cross-focused and it's cross-focused. The cross hasn't happened. Nobody knows Jesus is about to die on the cross except Jesus. And in verse 12, he responds, Jesus responds to his disciples' criticisms. He says, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. She gets something that the rest of the disciples have not openly admitted to themselves or maybe get at all. Jesus is on his final moments. This is the final season before he willingly goes to the cross to die for the sins of his friends and his enemies alike so that you and I, people like us, can be saved. She gets it. Nobody else does. Jesus praises her for it. Why? Because her worship is cross-focused. It's focused on the work he's about to do for us. I'm going to tell you the cross. You ever think about the cross? Do you ever just meditate on the cross? The cross is, is little more than an electric chair or a noose. But we don't sing beautiful songs about electric chairs and nooses. But we sing about wonderful crosses and rugged crosses and beautiful crosses. Why? See, our worship is cross-focused. Because Jesus was cross-focused. Because Jesus set his eyes on the cross that he might save us. Let me just say real quick. I know most of us in this room are professing, proclaiming Christians. But if there's someone in this room right now who has never proclaimed that, who has never confessed that, who's still waiting for an invitation, let me tell you, Jesus already made it. He made that invitation the moment he went to the cross and he died for you. And he said, come. Come. Maybe you still need to give your life to that. Maybe you still need to accept his salvation. Today's the day. Come and find me after church. I'd love to pray with you. Go and find somebody who you came with. They'd love to pray with you. To know that you've given your life over to him. Worship, passionate worship is going to be cross-focused because we are a cross-focused people. We have to be. Finally, we look at Mary Sitting there at Jesus' feet, and what we should know is that worship changes us. Worship changes us. Mary's sitting in the better place. 
And that becomes her posture. That becomes her place. In the book of John, when you read this story, it's followed only a few chapters later. By the death of Lazarus, Mary and Martha's brother. Lazarus dies. And in that story, we read that Jesus was one of their best friends. Jesus seems to tarry. He waits. How often do we feel like Jesus is tarrying, is waiting while we're suffering? Well, Martha does exactly what most of us do. Jesus is approaching. Martha anxiously runs to him. Not for help, but to accuse him. Not to help, but to accuse him. But Mary, Mary's got a posture now. Mary is staying behind and she continues to sit. Hear this in John 11, verse 28. Having said this, she, that's Martha, went back and called her sister, Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Where's Mary? She's sitting, waiting. Verse 32, as soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Where's Mary? As soon as she gets to Jesus, she's sitting at his feet again. Why? Because that's where she belongs and she knows it. Now I want to be careful not to read into a text words that are not there, but both Mary and Martha similarly accuse Jesus. Their words are almost identical. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But Mary does so running to him. I mean, Martha does so running to him. Mary does so sitting and waiting at his feet. Now here's where the difference really happens. When Jesus answers Martha, she immediately assumes that that he's talking about raising Lazarus from the dead into eternity. But Mary, Mary seems to be a person of hope. Why? Because she's sitting at Jesus' feet where she belongs. Worship should change us. And one of the ways it should change us is to carry us through the hardest and the most difficult times of our lives. Worship gives us a resource to carry on and wait for what God is doing, even when all hope seems lost. Church, we want to be a church of passionate worshipers. And to do that, it means that we need to be gathered together worshiping, not just when things are really good, but also when they're really hard. I'll tell you, one of the most frustrating things about being a pastor, and I imagine the same is true about being somebody who sits in the pew and loves the other people in the church, is that you see people going through the hardest times of their life who use that opposite opportunity to run from God or to run from his church. When those are the exact moments that we need to be together. So often we say, you know what? I just need to get my stuff together. I just need to fix my problem. I just need to clean myself up or I just, I don't want to be around the church crying or to be a burden on the people around me. We say these things. You've said them. I've said them. But if worship is about him and not about us, then what does it matter that the person next to us is sobbing as they sing praise Jesus? 
Say this week I had the uncomfortable. The uncomfortable pleasure of worshiping. Standing next to a couple who the day before had experienced utter tragedy and heartache. It was the uncomfortable pleasure, but to see that they knew exactly where they needed to be, and that wasn't sitting at home, sitting in their pain and sitting in their tears. It was coming to the gathered church and praising God alongside brothers and sisters, two of us who knew the situation. And I remember a certain moment and I I was singing and suddenly I heard one of them cry out to the Lord. And I was like, wow. I am blessed to be a part of the pain that's happening right next to me. See, passionate worship is focused on God. And because it's cross-focused, it's focused on death. But not just death, but the life that we get as believers. And we get to do this together. Tell you, my own worship, my own joy increased. I was launched into the depth of what it means to love God in a season of pain in a way that I don't remember being myself. Church, I want to say my hope is that you will all continue to join with us in passionate worship of our God and our King. My other hope is that if you've never worshiped God passionately, if you have never let yourself go into what we've been reading about today, as you think about God, as you read his word, as you sing praises, that you would, that you would experience what it's like to join in with the church together, the church gathered, and worship the God who is infinitely worth every word, every song, every heartbeat that we can muster in the hour and a half that we gather together and in every other hour you have by yourself every week. So how do we do this? Say, well, you know, Pastor Matt, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) I see it in others, but I don't know how to experience it myself. I see it in others, but I don't know how to get into it myself. Well, let's talk about that. Number one, you're going to get really sick of me saying this but I'm going to say it almost every week. My first point of application every week. You have a problem with what we're seeing. You don't see it in yourself. What should you do? Pray. We pray. We turn to the Lord and say, Lord, help me. Guys, I want to tell you, passionate worship is not something we build in ourselves. It's something we can help build, assist build, but only in first response to what the Holy Spirit's already doing in our lives. If you don't experience any passionate worship, if you never have, then what you need is the Holy Spirit to come into you and show you life and show you what it's like. Pray, pray that God would grow your love for that. And here's this, are you humble enough to say to the person who brought you here that you came with or a friend here, say, hey, you know what, what he was talking about today, I don't get it. Would you pray with me on this? Would you pray? We do that as a church together. Pray for one another. All right, number two, how do we do this? Set up intentional times of worship during the week. At the very beginning of this whole message, I said that what we do as individual Christians during the week will feed what we do as we gather and worship here. So take the time this week, every week. Set the time aside to be in the Word, 
to pray, to sing on your own, with your spouse, with your kids, with your grandkids. Heck, look around the room. Call somebody you know is lonely and say, hey, I'd like to to read the Bible with you this week. I'd like to pray this week. Can we just gather and do that together? Say, I'm alone, you're alone, let's do this thing. Okay, so pray. Number two, be intentional. Set up those times. And number three, here's what I would say. And man, in a lot of ways, I'm probably speaking to the choir on this, but make worship gathering a priority. Make worship gathering a priority. Here's the thing. It should be weird to you, to your kids, to your neighbors, that you're not at church on Sunday morning. Let me say it again. It should be weird to you, your kids, your neighbors, your grandkids, whoever, that you're not at church on Sunday morning. When I'd say my kids, like if we didn't get ready for church on Sunday morning, they'd be like, what is going on? Now I'm the pastor, right? Like, I gotta be here. (laughs) And they know that. But we go to vacation, and if we don't have plans to go to church on Sunday morning, and they realize it's a Sunday morning, like, are we going to go to find a church today? Well, no, kids, we're going to go do something else. You know, when your kids call you on not going to church when you're on vacation, that's humbling. <laughs> Tell you, uh, a couple years ago, we had uh, a whole series of burglaries in our neighborhood in Lahana, in the rural part. We were out in the, the countryside. Our neighbor got hit, house broken into, a bunch of stuff stolen, a bunch of other houses we were hearing constantly. Every couple of days, there was a house getting hit. It was always when people weren't home, which is good because when you live out in the countryside, people breaking into homes when people are at home does not go well. And one day, we were on our way to church. And just down from our road, we see a car sitting there. Now, we stopped and we said, hey, what are you guys up to? And said, oh, just looking at the sunrise. Now, they were facing the wrong direction. <laughs> so we called the police <clears throat> now I don't know who they were I don't know if they're the people that have been hitting houses but here's what I do know it was one three hour period every week when my car, my wife's car and we had a gal who was living on our property in a camper and her car was gone too and that was Sunday morning it should be easy for somebody to rob your house on a Sunday morning because they know where you are Okay? Now, I don't want your house robbed. Lock your doors, set up your security, whatever else you need to do. But do you hear that? If there's one time in your week, everybody knows exactly where you are, and it's not when you're at work, because who knows, you might miss a day of work. It's when you are at church worshiping God. Make gathering a priority. Make gathering a priority in worship. That's how we grow in this together. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for your word, the encouragement of the truth of the gospel, Lord, for worship. We thank you, Lord, that you invite us in to worship you and and together, broken people, gathering with other broken people, that we might sing the truth of your salvation and the cross and the resurrection, Lord. I pray, God, that you would work in us, grow this church, this gathering, these people, Lord, into passionate worshipers of you. And God, I pray that as we do that, it would be part of our making 
you're not ignorable in Monta Vista to the ends of the earth, and part of us making joyful, passionate disciples as a church, Lord. We come before you, and we submit to you, Lord, and we thank you, God. We praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.